Hello, welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. My name is Tim and this is Sam sitting opposite me. We're back after a summer of rest and recuperation. It's been wonderful, but equally, we're very pleased to be back in the bedroom making sweet, sweet podcasts for all of you podcasts. In this episode, we've got possibly the best mandolin piece you will ever hear. Mm, we've got a Schoenberg prototype. And Tim interviews another person called Tim, but the other one's from the Queen Six, who are a very nice singing group. Season two, Tim, it's time to get meta. Mm. We're going to review the reviewers, be critical of the critics. Yes. Following the example of US soprano Catherine Lewick, she criticised comments from the opera critic Manuel Brugg. Uh, Catherine Lewick had been playing Eurydice in the Salzburg Festival's performance of Orpheus in the Underworld. And following that, Brugg, in his comment in Die Welt, described her and her fellow cast members as fat women in tight corsets spreading their legs. In a tweet, she wrote, Why is it necessary to comment on a woman's body in the same sentence you comment on her high notes? I think she makes a very good point here. But this week, on Wednesday, in fact, Brugge hit back in an article entitled Why is it correct to use the word dick? Dick being German for fat. It seems like he's digging a hole here. He is, and... I think there are acceptable cases where you could comment on the appearance of someone on stage. I'm thinking of the ENO production of Chess that we went to see where Michael Ball played the Russian young up-and-comer. Mm. Michael Ball is 57 years old. Mm. And certainly for me, that stretched the believability factor a little bit too far. Mm. It was worth commenting on his appearance as being not a young up-and-comer. But unless that contract is broken, unless there's some sort of believability factor that's been overstepped, I can't really see a reason for talking about what people on stage look like. Some good news on appearances on stage coming up this week. The US soprano Jamie Barton has announced in an interview with The Guardian that she'll be wearing the bisexual pride colours, which are lavender, pink and blue, at the last night of the proms unearthing the old debate of whether the event is a celebration of music or a platform from which to promote social and political causes. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we can remember back to Anna Patlong wearing her EU-themed dress at the Royal Albert Hall and being told that that was unacceptable because it was blue with yellow stars on. She was asked to change. Mm. And I think it will be very interesting to see how Jamie Barton's bisexuality will be received by the last night of the proms crowd, who often still enjoy singing sort of imperial jingoistic melodrivel. Can you be cool with colonialism and bisexuality, I ask? Happy birthday, by the way, to Classic FM, who are 27 today. The station was launched with Handel's Zadok the Priest, you guessed it, on the 7th of September, 1992. <laughs> And a smooth segue into the story of the summer. There have been multiple accusations of sexual assault against star tenor Placido Domingo. This week, the Associated Press has produced 11 more testimonies, including one from ex-Washington National Opera singer Angela Turner-Wilson, who claims Domingo reached inside her robe and grabbed her breast. 
A Domingo publicist, Nancy Seltzer, has hit back saying, the ongoing campaign by the Associated Press to denigrate Placido Domingo is not only inaccurate but unethical. These new claims are riddled with inconsistencies and, as with the first story, in many ways simply incorrect. What was surprising in many ways was after that first story broke on Domingo's first performance back, he received a standing ovation before he'd sung a single note. Some representative and pretty appalling comments on a well-known music blog have so far included... Are we not to presume that Mrs. Rattle became Simon's wife because at some point he came on to her? Of course geniuses deserve preferential treatment. This woman should have considered herself lucky to be around him and should have made the respective allowances. Obviously, these are inexcusable reactions, but to me, I wonder, is it surprising to find that the old grey male audiences who attend so much prestige opera sympathise with the old grey male singer when they're accused? Would Domingo have received a standing ovation from the Heritage Orchestra or Chinake's audience? I wonder... Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth noting that this is definitely the most high-profile and best-loved musician so far to be accused post-Me Too. So how much does that factor on his reception and reactions to Mm. him? Someone who has not been well-loved, although they should be, is Shostakovich. The musical stave with the letters of his name have been mysteriously hacked off his tombstone in Novodichi Cemetery. It's a bit weird, but uh, it's good to see that he's still provoking strong reactions from audiences. Also in Shostakovich news, the UK musicologist Marina Froliver-Walker has unearthed a rather disparaging 1939 review of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony by the ex-literary editor of The Spectator, Walter J. Turner. He said... If this symphony has been composed by William Walton, I should have said that this talented composer had gone completely to seed, and it is very depressing to find that Russia, in spite of all its magnificent state aid to musicians and composers, cannot produce anything better than this after a generation of subsidised effort. Is Walter J. Turner still alive? Are we sure it wasn't him who hacked the letters off? (laughs) And finally, in news, a little bit of a rumour, some unfounded hearsay. Nicola Benedetti and Winter Marcellus have been doing a lot of work together recently. Indeed, she recently released an album of his music on Decca Classics and has performed his violin concerto across the globe. We have reason to believe their relationship has become more than purely professional. We are enormous fans of Marcellus, the first person to win both a jazz and classical Grammy in the same year, aged just 22, and indeed Benedetti, who not only is a fabulous violinist, but is also doing fantastic educational outreach work. If this turns out to be true, we wish them the very best of luck. Go on! Analysis. Hi, T. For ANSYS, I got a bit of O.S.berg for ya. What are you doing, Sam? I'm abating. I was trying to abbreviate everything. Unsuccessfully. Why? Well, today is all about my favourite abbreviated symphony, Arnold Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony No. 1. It's scored for 15 instruments and was premiered in 1907 
It sounds like this. piece tries to find the spot in the middle of the Venn diagram where the expectations we have of a symphony and the expectations we have of a single symphonic movement or sonata form overlap. So it's only about 20 minutes long. If you want to hear a bit more about what sonata form is, then check out episode 9 in series 1 where we explained it using the then Prime Minister Theresa May. God, won't it be good when we can say then Prime Minister Boris? Mm, it could, could be next week. It could be next week. But remember, people don't come here for the political satire, Tim. They come here for the jingles. Jingle. Broadly, the symphonic form established over the late 18th and most of the 19th century is to go slow introduction... Big, loud, and extended first movement with strong themes. Slower, introspective second movement. Something playful and dancey for the third, and something fast and very final for the fourth. So why has Schoenberg tried to combine this with sonata form? Well, perhaps, perhaps, it's because he's at his core a musical experimenter, a sort of engineer, and this is a new prototype. He's trying stuff out, seeing if it can work, but... He's also showing that he understands the tradition of the 19th century, as we start the 20th, and that he understands it so well that he can play with it and manipulate it in order to sustain and give a shape to his music and his new approach to tonality that could otherwise be quite difficult to follow. By having two possible structural routes through the piece for people to follow, it sort of doubles the chances that they feel like they're clinging on to something. You've alluded to his approach to tonality, but this isn't serialism yet is it? No. Serialism is coming. It's his big idea. It's his summer theologica. But this is before that, on his journey from Wagnerian chromata angst of sort of guru leader all the way to atonality. It's not tonal, but it's not serialist either. We're about halfway in between. I think of it as an anti-tonal experiment just as much as it's a structural experiment. Having said that, there are some aspects of serialism here. Schoenberg is still looking for ways of removing the hierarchies that Western music has had built in for generations. It's a bit like how my grandpa anthropomorphizes the chocolates within a rose's tent. Well, of course it is, yeah. Me, I just like the pink and orange ones, you know, with the cream in. Uh, in musical terms, I'm prioritising two similar pitches, maybe sounding something like a tonic and a dominant. Grandpa Pete is a chocolate egalitarian and wouldn't want to just eat one or two in case he hurt the feelings of all the others. So he won't eat a pink one again until he's tried every other flavour. Is it a shortcut to diabetes? Perhaps. But musically, that's called a tone row. You can't come back to a single pitch until you've heard every other one. It could sound like this. Or this. Or you could stack all of your chocolate notes at once and consume them all in one go, like this. Yum! Composers would go on to apply this rotation principle to everything from note duration to articulation and dynamics. 
In the Chamber Symphony, Schoenberg applies other ways of breaking down that orange-pink tonic-dominant primacy, but he does it using the kind of organic structures they loved in the 19th century. It's time for a good organic metaphor. Which one would you like, Tim? From acorns we get mighty oak trees or a tiny trickle of a stream growing into a mighty river, or my favourite, from the DNA encoded in mosquito blood, you can build a lethal theme park. Yeah, I definitely want the Jurassic Park one, thanks. Of course. So Schoenberg has all the DNA for the 23 themes in the Chamber Symphony, all encoded within the first few bars of mosquito blood. They sound like this. That includes a few crucial elements. This chord of fourths, a stretched version of this chord of augmented fourths, a three-step chromatic ascent and descent that sounds a bit like a wonky James Bond, a very Star Trek transporter whole tone chord, and a long-term resolution of an A-flat to an A-natural. All except the final one of these are basically anti-tonal. They break down that tonic-dominant pink and orange cream roses chocolate hierarchy. These DNA strands don't lend themselves to creating a firm sense of being in any one key. The last one does. It basically fits into a normal key confirmation, the perfect cadence. But the rest of these genetic components defy that kind of gesture, and all of the 23 themes can be seen to be dino offspring of Schoenberg's original three bars of mosquito blood. So, for instance, the first theme we hear in the horns is taking that chord of fourths and just playing each note one after the other rather than all at once. Some are more complicated, like the first subject heard in the cellos. It starts with a fourth, like the horns, then the stretched augmented fourth, before a Star Trek transporter melody. In each of these cases, he's taken something that was vertical harmony and made it into a horizontal melody. This becomes this. A single moment is extrapolated into a whole section. I think subconsciously it makes us feel the piece is really complete, and it's why even though it's not tonal, we can feel when there's a wrong note, or maybe more pertinently for most listeners, it isn't just random plinky-plonky notes. There are no spares. Over the course of his career, Schoenberg would go on to demonstrate that music could exist outside of the boundaries of tonality. But like any innovator, there's a process that got him to that final goal of serialism that would disrupt classical music composition for the best part of a century. What makes him a particular kind of genius is that even this prototype is a separately wonderful piece of music that is rich in original ideas and connections to its forebears. Message of this week's analysis is don't throw away your rough drafts, show your working, and don't be afraid to abbreviate. Composer Fact File, Arnold Schoenberg. Born, 1874, Vienna. 
His music was later vilified by the Nazis as degenerate because of his Jewish heritage. He was largely self-taught and only took counterpoint lessons with the composer Alexander Zemlinsky, who was to become his first brother-in-law. Earned a living by orchestrating operettas whilst composing his own works. Strauss and Mahler were early fans, although the latter once called him a conceited puppy. In 1898, he converted to Lutheran Christianity. Scholars suggest this was to avoid the resurgence in anti-Semitism. In October 1901, he married Mathilde Zemlinsky. He was also a talented painter. His painting The Red Gaze has been called an expressionist masterpiece. 1910, Schoenberg wrote his Harmonie Theory of Harmony which to this day remains one of the most influential books on music theory. He served and fought in World War I. After the war, he took on students, including Anton Webern, Alban Berg and Hans Eisler. Together, the group called themselves the Second Viennese School. In 1933, responding to the rise of the Nazi party, he reclaimed the Jewish identity and moved to Boston, USA. The composer had... Triskaikekadobophobia, or fear of the number 13. He died on Friday the 13th. He once said, There is still plenty of good music to be written in C major. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Rather than doing a live review this week, I thought I would give a quick roundup of my summer concert highlights. First of which is Dominic Argento's miniature opera, Mrs. Havisham's Wedding, which was paired with Erin Copeland's song cycle, The Twelve Poems of Emily Dickinson which was put on at Grindborn last month. And for those of you that don't know about Grindborn, it's it's sort of an opera festival held every summer at the Arcola Theatre in Dalston. And it's billed as an inexpensive, mould-breaking alternative to the super-expensive Grindborn. This show in particular was was actually marketed as, or, or in its programme, it was written that it was a labyrinthine gender study and both pieces were performed entirely by soprano Sarah Minns with a piano accompaniment by David Eaton. All in all, it was an excellent performance, Sam. You and I were there together. No doubt why it was a highlight. Indeed. And the Argento I would thoroughly recommend looking out for. But the main takeaway for me was the fact that Minns was in fact the only woman involved in the show. Now, I have no wish to upbraid Grindborn for any lack of gender representation. They, amongst other fringe festivals, are making big strides towards gender parity amongst their creative teams. And this becomes painfully obvious when you compare credits with those more established operatic behemoths. Mm. But it does seem a bit fishy that a show devoted to the study of the female psyche should be shaped by the minds of men. Sam, did you have anything to say about that particular performance? I think my main takeaway was how brilliant the Argento was as a piece of music. I I just found it totally compelling, both in performance and composition, a real treat and it suited the singer's voice beautifully everyone look out for sarah mins in the future she's a real talent my next highlight 
This is a big one. <laughs> was the Shanghai Symphony Orchestra. They followed a fantastic rendition of Rachmaninoff's symphonic dances at the BBC Proms with an orchestral arrangement of Hey Jude, written, uh, it was a very sweet introduction by the conductor, as a gift for our friends in the UK. I also saw Glyndebourne's production of The Magic Flute at the Proms, which was fun, but it didn't necessarily blow me away. So there you go. There's a summer roundup. Oh, no, I was also in South Africa. I went to South Africa for two weeks, and there was a hotel booked uh drumming band in zulu get up and it was really fun <laughs> that's insightful criticism right there that's, yeah, that's, oh. no this isn't the really this i'm just saying i'm just saying mm. sam what about you what were your summer highlights well i had a very nice time at a couple of proms i tweeted about one don't know if you saw it on the social media yeah, sure uh, it was Brahms Tragic Overture and then Wagner Liebstold and then Mozart Requiem in the second half and I had two things that I took away from that really one was that if you're going to put an enormously popular first or second half on put it together with something that people won't have heard it was just a whole concert of really popular bangers and that's great but it was basically sold out. There was, was it you couldn't yeah, move, yeah. And also, no one was exposed to anything that they wouldn't have been otherwise. It would be quite nice if the sort of wonky first half was then followed by the Mozart Requiem or something like that. You know, it feels like an opportunity that was missed. The other main takeaway was that in the gallery at the top of the Royal Albert Hall, which is where I like to sit and uh, listen, I think it's where you get the best sound, everyone's decided that it's cool to take your shoes off this year for some reason, and it's very smelly. Sam, tell me about the CD you've been listening to this summer. Well, I've listened to a few new things over summer, mainly very lovely. You know, Mark Vanderweil has released a new CD of Joseph Phipps's Clarinet Concerto, which is pretty awesome. And there's, there's another Iron Audi disc out, like there is most weeks. And there's a big Corn Gold disc. Is that the Iron Audi disc that got a one-star review in I The th- Guardian? I think it may well be, yes. <laughs> uh, but the one I want to talk about is my new favourite composer I hadn't heard of until last week. It's David Bruce. Not David the Bruce, which I keep wanting to say, like Robert the Bruce, but it's not him. Uh, he's written something called The North Wind Was a Woman. And it's a new disc of chamber music released on Signum Records, and I think it's completely wicked. Okay, all right. I'm just crazy about it. I think, well, certainly two of the works on it I'm crazy about. It's all chamber music for sort of odd lineups. Three big pieces. The first one is called Cymbeline, which is a mandolin-led instrumental piece in three movements about the Celtic god of the sun. And not Shakespeare's Roman despot that I knew you were thinking about, T-Bone. The title piece is the next one on the disc, The North Wind Was a Woman, and it's a song cycle with words by Alastair Middleton, who is no relation to Kate or Pippa, I checked. It was originally written for the Grammy-winning American soprano Dawn Upshaw, you might have heard of, but here it's recorded by Nora Fisher. No relation to me. No relation to you. No, it's actually spelled differently as well. Oh. It's got a C in it. Uh, and like finally, Bobby Fisher, the chess player. I wonder if they're related. That I didn't check out. Mm. But well, you should have. I'm sorry. It's just bad prep. And finally, 
The Consolation of Rain, which is an instrumental pastoral piece written in five parts, with an oboe taking a sort of prominent role. What an unconventional blend! It really is. The lineup of instruments is uh, slightly mad. Mandolins, strings, woodwind, uh, a host of percussion stuff, and stylistically it's just as diverse. You've got, well, it's unlike basically anything I've heard before, a blend of folk, Latin, minimalist kind of stuff going on, a bit of medieval French song, I think, is definitely an influence. You've got some jazz harmonies and some avant-garde techniques all sort of swirled together in the middle. Uh, the first piece, the mandolin feature, written for Avi Avital, just comes at you ready for a brawl. I wanted to sort of streak my face with woad and braid my beard. It's sort of Celtic rough and tumble mm. uh, up and at it. It's infectious, high-energy stuff with the mandolin absolutely tearing it up. Avatar is clearly a virtuoso. I have to confess I haven't heard that many mandolin players recently, but my sister Alice has recently been strumming learned about for about last four months, and Avatar is better than her. So he's the best of the two that I've ever heard, but I bet she could show him a thing or two about playing the Baroque violin. As a piece, Cymbeline captures that feeling of a jam session. Mm. I'd love to see how it was notated, actually, because it all feels sort of semi-improvisatory and has lots of uh, asymmetric kind of folk phrases where things don't really add up and you just roll with it and it's cool. And I defy you, basically, to listen to this and not get up and have a little boogie. The Song Cycle is a really interesting piece. It's full of natural imagery and some very impressive singing by Nora Fisher, no relation, we assume, to Bobby Fisher. She displays a whole host of colours with her voice and just as there are hybrid styles in Cymbeline, she adopts hybrid styles in her singing. Sometimes the voices with the larynx really high sounding kind of like a pop singer or a um, musical theatre singer, that kind of twang that you'd expect from that. And then suddenly it'll drop right back down again and get more operatic sound. So the contrast between a track like Moon and then a later one like Night or Mountain is uh, you know really stark contrast. And very few singers, I think, would take the kind of risks that she does to pull that kind of performance out. So it's a real high note, I think, on the disc. The Consolation of Rain, which is an odd title, is still a cool piece, and it's played very impressively. But if I'm honest, it's it's just a bit of a come down after the roller coaster of the previous two. I found it a little bit less compelling. And the other two hit real heights of both mania and then these wonderful meditative still moments. And the Consolation of Rain just sits a little bit more in the middle most of the time and it you know, captures a certain ambience ambience but is never ambient it's which is a testament to the really engaging playing but it's just it felt like it wanted to pull in one direction or the other it just feels a little bit sort of uh, magnolia mm. after some really vivid colors having said that it's an awesome disc of music unlike anything else i've heard for a while i would strongly recommend it and it's out on signum classics go and get it
that rather lovely music was from the Queen Six, an a cappella arrangement of The Last Rose of Summer. The same title as a new album of theirs coming out on the 20th of September. I caught up with Tim Carlston of The Queen Six to find out a little bit more about the album and what it's like to sing at a royal wedding. A huge welcome to Tim Carlston of Queen Six. Hello. Tim, thank you very much for coming onto the pod. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. This is your first time on a podcast. Yeah, how did you know that? Did I say that? No. I've just put it on Facebook. Did you really? Yeah, I've just just checked in here and said, (laughs) my first ever time recording a a podcast interview, I've no idea what to expect, but I've spoken to you for a bit now, so I know what's going on. Come in and take your trousers off. Yeah, yeah. I'm already there, mate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You guys have got an upcoming album. We have. The Last Rose of Summer. Correct. Which, as the title would suggest to me anyway, is a collection of British, British or English folk songs? British, folk songs of the British Isles. British Isles. So could you tell me a bit about the conception of the disc? What made you want to record these songs in particular? Yeah, well it's been in the pipeline for ages and we felt that our first disc should be a polyphony disc because that's our kind of traditional background and then out of that we thought we'll we'll do a non-sacred polyphony Mm. disc by the same six composers that we cunningly dubbed the Queen Six, you know, the original Queen Six, which we made up. It sounded really realistic, you know, yeah. um, but it, it, we did actually make it up. But they were the same six composers, and they were great. And then we, we always had this in the pipeline, because I think you can't get away from the fact... You might not have noticed similarities between us and the King's Singers, but... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we're often compared to them, and they're such a huge part in the kind of advent of a cappella singing yeah. and, and close harmony stuff, and they're heroes, and they they've are. done a lot of folk song discs, and it, it just lends itself really well to our setup, I think. And folk songs themselves have such incredible melodies. They're, they're memorable. They're, they're part of the landscape, though. Yeah, absolutely. And they say so much. And they're, they're open to so many interpretations of harmonies and reharmonies and all yeah. the rest of it. So we've had the idea for ages and then got together with Signum mm-hmm. Records. And this is our first disc with them. Of course, because you recorded one of the albums yourself, one of your previous albums. Yeah, we've got, a, we've got a kind of pop and jazz album yeah. that I recorded kind of engineered and we produced as we were going along it was very stressful <laughs> was that in windsor in, in the chapel in no it wasn't our first disc was recorded in st george's chapel windsor because we thought well we ought to do that you know and the record label at the time said well, it'd be really good to be able to put that on the disc mm. and but because they built windsor castle so near heathrow we had to record it between one o'clock and five o'clock in the morning four nights in a row right. it's just I was just horrific. I didn't think about that. If you record during the day at all, it's just like every three minutes you have to You should stop have put a drone up in the air. We should have done that. That would have sorted them out. Yeah. Now, I had awful sciatica at the time. I just remember there was one five-part piece that Dan and me, this, the, um, the two countertenors, were doubling up on the top part. And my sciatica got so bad at three in the morning or whatever, I said, look, Dan, would you take this one on your own? And I just remember lying in the control room with this box of drugs. I didn't know what any of them were. And I was just... <laughs> I was just eating these drugs. Anyway, so this one was recorded in Ascot Priory, which is quite, uh, it has quite a history of people recording and it's great acoustic because mm. it kind of serves well for polyphony stuff and the modern stuff. It's, it's yeah. not too generous, but not dry. Are these arrangements that you guys have done yourselves or somebody in the band? Some or of them, yeah, some of them are from within the group. One of them is mine. It's my, it was my first ever attempt at arranging. So it's quite first ever. fun to do that. Well, I'd done bits for A-level 
like yeah. really badly at the last minute just before I was due to hand it into my dad, who was my head of music. But there are a few from within. There are a few kind of original, traditional ones, Ray Fawn Williams, Gustav Holst. There's Percy Granger, Brig Fair. Mm. So there's some traditional ones like that. And then we commissioned Alex Lestrange, who you'll have come across, I expect, yeah. to do three arrangements for us. And he had, a, I mean, he had a really hard job because one of them we chose was Danny Boy. And that's kind oh of... Oh, God, how do you put, print your mark on that, is it? Well, once the King's Singers have with their amazing arrangement of it, I just yeah. think, where can you go from Who's that? that? Was that a Philip Lawson or a... Yeah, yeah. I think it was, yeah. Uh, but Alex is an equally amazing arranger, I think, and a very clever guy. And So he did these three for us early one morning, Danny Boy and The Last Rose of Summer, mm. which is the title track. And so. then my dad did a few for us as well. He's been a a very busy arranger for us. Yeah, oh, that's rather lovely having a day. Well, particularly as we don't have to pay him. Yeah. And he's great. And, and actually, I was just thinking on the way in, w- way in here today, because I was listening to some of your stuff, and you're clearly a, a jazzer. And I am as well, trumpet player and jazz singer a little bit, really badly. My dad is, Alex Estrange is a jazz bass player. Yeah. Rory Bowen, who did a couple of the arrangements on me, he's very up there with the jazz harmonies and things. So yeah. I think these folk song melodies lend themselves really well to well, those yeah. scrunchy... Well, modal as well. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So you, you guys are based in St George's Chapel of Windsor. Yeah. I mean, you're lay clients there, all, <clears throat> all of you. Yeah, that's right. It feels like quite a tall order to be part of an a cappella, I presume touring, concert, gigging group, as well as... Late yeah. parking every day. Do you find it hard to squeeze it all in? Well, yeah, we, I mean, we can't, because of the leave system at Windsor, yeah. we can't all get out during term time. We adhere to school holiday times mm. because of the boy choristers. So we basically filled up all our holidays, much to our family's delight. Mm. We filled up all our holidays touring, um, except for kind of three, three-ish weeks in August when we have family yeah. time or, or, or alone time or whatever. Yeah. And I always say... When we get to our first venue on tour, I was go, oh, it's so lovely to be on holiday with you guys. <laughs> it just does feel a bit like that. And now that we've, you know, a few years ago, we made the break to kind of memorise everything. So all our pro- programmes are memorised, well rehearsed. We tend to tour exactly the same programme if we can for, for a whole season, which means that by the time the end of the first tour comes, we're just so comfortable with it that we don't have to rehearse that much. We just mm. you know, set the tempos and maybe correct some things that have gone wrong the night before or whatever. Mm. So it becomes not too much of a stress, but it, there's a lot of travelling and it's mm. kind of living out of a hotel. Does it still maybe. feel like a holiday? Yeah, I mean, I think it does to me. I've only been in the group for six years. That's the, the current group as it stands has been around for six years. And that's when we really started to kind of kick off, you know, do the social media and try and push ourselves into the musical sphere or picking words out of the air, they don't mean anything. So from the, for me, I'm still very excited by the group, you know. I, yeah. I think the other guys are as well. We enjoy the well, That's not what they told me, they told me. <laughs> really? Um, I'm intrigued. I mean, obviously, yeah, you sing together pretty much every day during time. Yeah, time. every day apart from Wednesdays, yeah. Apart from Wednesdays. Do you, do you think that's helped create a specific... Queen's Six sound, do you think that contributes? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to, yeah. We, we're so used to singing with each other. We've obviously got the other six lay clerks, there are 12 lay clerks at Windsor, and it's such a great team. I'm so, I feel so privileged every time I sing with those guys, you know, mm. but it's got to add something to the group, I think, and mm. the fact that we all live and work in Windsor Castle, so our rehearsals are in the dungeon there. Yeah. Were you a chorister? I was only, I was a chorister at a parish church where, yeah. again, my dad was... <laughs> Of course, yeah. The choir director and the organist. Some of the other guys were choristers at cathedrals. And yeah. Dan, the first alto, is just amazing. He didn't take to singing until he was at uh, Peterhouse in Cambridge doing oh. his degree. Then he got the bug for singing. I you know, sung so. with my brother. He was a scholar there. 
Was he? Yeah. Well, they probably know. What was? What's this? What's your Dan Britton? Dan Britton. Mm, he might be before. He's got two children, so he's quite old. Yeah, I don't think Dan's Sorry, that ben. old. <laughs> <laughs> I've got four. I'm um, even older. Oh uh, yeah, I suppose you are a bit older, aren't you? Um, How old are you? Forty-two. Don't look it, especially not with your trousers you. off. You. <laughs> you said you toured to toured Germany. Where else have you been? Have you been all over the world, or is it? Yeah, so we've got agents in. Germany, the Baltic States, and America now. And we oh, do, so you've been over to the States? We have. We've done, I think, three tours to the States now, which have been great. They love it all over there. Yeah. The first time we went, I felt a bit daunted about it because they've got such a great a cappella thing going on over there. Competitions. Yeah, and some of the Disney medleys and Disney big choirs recording Disney songs, mm. and they're just absolutely staggering. But what they really want to hear is the polyphony stuff. They yeah. basically want to hear... Is, uh, you know, stand there, sing polyphony, and talk about the royal family, which I'm happy to do. Yeah, of course, because they pay me to do. It, I'm happy because you guys would have sung at the weddings of Prince Harry and Prince Princess Jeannie. Did Charles? Does he ever come up to you guys and say, "Can you can you do a bit of parry for me?" Funnily enough, not. Uh, no. Why well, is that his favourite? Yeah, he, he did a program on parry. Oh, did he? With them. Um, with Jeremy Dibble, who's my old lecturer from Yeah, I recognise that name, yeah. He was a brilliant lecturer, and he's written a book on Delius, I think. Wow. And um, Big Parry Expert, he writes for lots of mags right. on Okay, well, I know Prince Charles is very fond on the, of, of music in general. He is, yeah. As is Edward, I think. You might find it on iPlayer, it's a programme of Prince Charles listening to Parry and going, mm, yes, that's nice, mm, I like that. I've got to ask, how was it with, for the wedding? Was it a bit crazy? <sighs> It was like a circus for about two weeks before, you know, the yeah. number of cameras. I was blown God. away how many cameras and lights there were in that chapel and you couldn't really see any of them on no. the telly. It was oh, just, no. it was so clever. It was lovely to see it all working. And the flowers were incredible. Mm. And actually, they had like a whole symphony orchestra under the organ screen or whatever. Yeah. Or, well, a chamber orchestra. And it was brilliant. But for all the kind of grandeur and the whole of Windsor was completely nuts. Yeah. You didn't feel like there were what is it, is it two billion people or five billion people watching it or something it's so a fifth yeah. of the most of them in America a fifth of the population yeah were watching me <laughs> sat in front of George Clooney with him swooning all over the back of my yeah. head did, did you get a sniff of him it was embarrassing he got a sniff of me I said get off me yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really nice and intimate and I completely forgot to be honest that, that it was all so big until they said I now I therefore declare you man and wife or whatever and there was a huge scream from outside and it was, just, it was just brilliant. Poi polloi. And then I went out with the castle in the afternoon. I ventured out bravely. In your cassock? No, not so much. And it was incredible. All the roads were shut and it was just rammed with people, but everyone was having a brilliant time. It was like a festival. Yeah, it was oh, great. wonderful. Yeah. So my, I would say my, what I'm looking forward to most is the last race of summer. What are you most looking forward to on the disc? I think my favourite track on it is probably the last race of summer. Oh, um, same as me. And that's what I've done stupid little video from somewhere in Germany about for some publicity. But I think the most powerful and the most incredible arrangement is Sugan, which is a Welsh tune. And it's arranged by a guy called Rory Bowen, who's done a couple, two, three on here. Mm. He's a really, really clever guy. He's a brilliant tenor and he's a brilliant arranger. And in fact, what should we do with The Drunken Sailor, which is a, such an insanely clever arrangement. Right. He was in hospital for a while, and I, I didn't know this, and I emailed him saying, look, Rory, we, we're recording this disc scene. We really need this, what should we do with The Drunken Sailor? You know, and you've been leaving it and leaving it. 
And he got it to us like the next day or whatever and said, I'm really sorry. And then I found out he'd been in hospital and went really ill. But he did it all, like, did it without the keyboard and stuff. Just, such a genius. The Sue Gann arrangement, he was a chorister at St Paul's Cathedral, Rory was, mm. under John Scott at the time. And John Scott died, oh, I think in 2015 or 2016, really out of the blue, at the age of, I think, 48, and left, left his pregnant wife behind. Oh, and it was God. just a horrible story. And this is, um, Sue Gann is, you know, Sleep My Baby, it's a lullaby. And his arrangement is absolutely staggering. And, I mean, I was so moved by it. To be honest, I would have been anyway, but with the backstory as well. Yeah. I couldn't sing it for months properly. I couldn't sing it without crying in mm. concerts. It's embarrassing, isn't it? But that's my favourite track. And, you know, alongside the backstory, I did text Rory. He was very rude about my text. I thought it was a really nice text. I said something like, you know, I, if I could choose any arrangement that, was, that I could arrange like good mm. English, it would be that one. What did you say that was rude back? Yeah, I can't tell you they that. I can't tell you that. He's a funny guy. Was it a dick pic? No, it wasn't a dick pic. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> so there we go, that's my favourite. And obviously the best one on the disc, best arrangement on the disc is Down by the Sally Gardens, that's mine. Mm. It's a piece of genius from me. That's one that, we, that I remember singing at school as well, actually. It's a grade four piece. Is it? Is it really? And actually, I'm not a good pianist. I'm a really poor pianist Mm, as as far as reading notation and transmitting any kind of sense to my fingers. Mm. But what I can do because of my jazz upbringing is make up accompaniments to melodies and just Mm. and and I always put in scrunchy jazzy alternative chords instead. Mm. So basically, when I did that arrangement, I said, "Hold." I'll have a go down by the Sally Gardens to the guys, mm. knowing full well that I'd played it about a billion times. Mm. So I just put that down. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, how about this? And everyone's going, just, just came straight you're out. You're a genius. <laughs> I don't think that word's ever been used in my <laughs> presence, apart from about someone else. So there we go. Anyway, Sue Gan, check it out. Anyway. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait and turn hooks for the last race of summer. Which is out which is on the out. September the 20th. September the 20th. The Signum label. Signum Records. Lovely. Lovely. We've got some awesome things coming up in the next two weeks. Yeah, back to school and suddenly everyone starts doing back to programming interesting things. First is The Listening Post from the South Bank Symphonia, which will be the first ever concert held at the Postal Museum's Mail Rail, which is that engineering depot in the Underground Railway that transported posts underneath the streets of London. So that's going to be fascinating. Cool. So that's the 13th of September. On the 14th of September, the Saturday, Sakari Oramo conducts the last night of the proms which will have all the usual stuff in it. There's also a world premiere of Daniel Kidane's Woke, which I believe is a reference to post 
me to awareness. Probably need a bit more of that going on. The Living Orchestra is also happening on the same night at Stratford Playhouse. It's a two-hour playathon by Orchestra of the Swan, set in the round. Two hours isn't actually that long, is it? With the doors opening every ten minutes for visitors to come and go at their leisure. Recomposed Max Richter, 14th to the 15th of September, at Peckham's multi-storey car park. So Max Richter's reimagining of the Valdez Four Seasons is scored for electronics and string ensemble and harpsichord, and the multi-storey orchestra will be doing what they do best, which is playing orchestral music in car parks. Continuing our theme of slightly off-the-beaten-track venues, on the 18th of September at the Victoria Dalston, Joby Burgess will have a night of percussion and electronics. That'll include a bit of John Luther Adams, if you enjoyed Become Desert a couple of weeks ago, and Voyages by Gabriel Prokofiev, grandson of Sergei. Then looking forward to the, the 18th to the 22nd of September, actually, there's, again, continuing our theme of strange venues, the Baskul Chamber, which is beneath Tower Bridge, will be hosting works by Charles Mingus, Ian Chambers and Julius Eastman who's an amazing composer that people should know more about um, it's an awesome looking venue 120 steps below Tower Bridge so yeah. that I'm is really well worth checking out I'm really forward to checking that one out it should be cool and finally Dear Marie Stopes is on at King's Place King's Cross on the 21st of September Alex Mills has written a new 45 minute chamber opera that explores a snapshot of society's sex life using extracts from thousands of emotionally charged letters Stopes received in response to her book the controversial sex manual Married Love published in 1918 If these alt classical music events pique your interest I thoroughly recommend checking out the alternative classical blog at alternativeclassical.co.uk it's a brilliant source for concerts and it's run by good friend of the pod, Hannah Fiddy. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Yeah. Couple of quick thank yous. Firstly, to the Omega Ensemble for that lovely recording of the Schoenberg. Came all the way from Australia, that one. Shout out to Dan D'Souza. Thanks for listening, Dan, the man with many historical horns. And also thanks to Steve from Signum Records for the clip of the David Bruce. Also worth having a quick shout out to all you chaps. In case you're interested in listening to our summer bonus episode where Sam pops down to Salisbury and takes a look at a fantastic musical project that Salisbury Cathedral School Choir did in conjunction with Exeter House, a school for children with special educational needs. 